Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about the unbearable weight of massive talent, and joining me to talk about this one is my friend Fred Cobb. Fred, thanks for coming here. Uh, thank you, but I'm not actually the real Fred Cobb. I'm uh, currently a fictionalized version of myself appearing on your part. I'm glad you had a funny joke to start it off with because I felt like I was unprepared. It's like, if there's any movie you should be able to think of a funny joke to start out a podcast about, it's, <laughs> it's, it's probably this one, but I've just been uh, I've, I've just been going through it the last few days. So I probably am not as prepared as I should be. Though I did do some preparation in watching other Nick Cage movies because uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is, if nothing but, a uh, Nicolas Cage homage and showcase. Uh, it is a uh, very meta movie. It stars Nicolas Cage playing a, as Fred alluded to, a fictionalized different kind of version of Nicolas Cage, but still largely himself um, existing in the current day world, uh, but still kind of uh, struggling in his career. It comments on the fact that the, the man just acts all the time, but he can't really find like that pure uh, movie that really like will uh, get, get him back to the kind of thing he wants to be doing that really uh, stokes his passion for acting as opposed to just taking paycheck jobs that he's become so known for. And the movie is often commenting on that. He has in the movie, this version of Nick Cage is uh, going through money troubles as we have uh, seen uh, as as we have seen, uh, Nick, not as we've seen, but as we've heard about for years with Nick Cage making crazy purchases and having to take all these jobs to account for that. He is uh, going through a divorce and has a teenage daughter. His uh, ex-wife is put, named Olivia. She's played by Sharon Horgan. And he has a daughter named Addie, who is uh, played by Lily Sheen, daughter of Michael Sheen and Kate Beckinsale. And he and, and just you know, he's having, he's really just kind of struggling to connect with them and uh, kind of figure out what he wants to do with his career. His agent, who is uh, played by Neil Patrick Harris, uh, gets, get, gets him an offer for a $1 million to appear at a rich guy's birthday party in Mallorca. Uh, that rich guy's name is Javier Gutierrez, and he is played by Pedro Pascal. Uh, very hesitant. He's very hesitant to take it at first, but eventually uh, uh, Nick just agrees. All right, I guess I got to do this. I need to make some money somehow because I am uh, in deep depth. He has like $600,000 to uh i think it's the sunset towers complex in la where he's just been living and uh he's like all right i'm gonna go to this uh i'm gonna go to this party and javier is uh just a massive nick cage fan he uh really wants to connect with his uh idol and favorite actor and this is very excited wants to pitch him a script and all that and uh at first nick is kind of like you know a little uh, put off and reticent to uh really actually connect to this guy he just wants to get his money and go but then he soon realizes they have a deep passion for the same kind of cinema and yeah this guy really really does respect him and they connect but and it turns out uh you know, maybe there's more to hobby that meets the eye because uh, some uh, CIA agents played by uh, Tiffany Haddish and uh, Ike Barinholtz, uh, they they stop Nick in the middle of his trip and say, hey, this Javier guy is actually bad news. He's a drug lord that may or may not kidnap the daughter of an anti-drug dealer politician in an attempt to convince that politician not to run. You need to kind of like spy on him, see what's up. And Nick is now very conflicted because he has a new friend who also might be a bad guy and hijinks ensue. Uh, before we dive even deeper into this movie, Fred, I have to ask, because uh, I know you went on your own uh, little uh, Nick Cage uh, education tour of your own, as I've seen on Letterboxd the last few weeks. So I know you've uh, more deeply familiarized yourself with his filmography during this time. I'm wondering, uh, even prior to that or now as a result of that, uh, what do you consider your relationship to be with Nick Cage? Because a lot of people uh, speak of his, you know, direct-to-video um, stretch of his career with, like, uh, with with admiration, though ironic as it, it may be. And I can't say I'm really one of them. You know, people like to say, oh, Nick Cage is awesome. I love Nick Cage. So I don't know how much of that 
stuff people actually watch, even if they allude to Nick Cage being great because of the crazy kind of stuff he does that a lot of people just really honestly never see. I haven't heard of, you know, probably 20 of the movies that show up on his IMDb over the last like 15 years. Uh, but, you know, they're there. And I think some people like to ironically just talk about how awesome he is because of that. And that is not really my relationship with him. I just, I, I just can't really think of him as that guy. I just think of him as a guy that's just had a long career and just like coming on out of my consciousness as he's like decided to like do movies that are like worth seeing. But I don't know if I'm as, I think you and I are probably similar in that like, maybe you haven't watched many of those movies either, but you like have sought out some of the good ones. And I think I'm missing, I'm probably missing some of the older stuff that people really like from like the eighties. And I feel like you might be missing a couple of the more recent ones, but overall, like, I think we've watched a, I think, I don't want to say more recent, but like maybe 2000 stuff. Whereas I think I'm actually probably missing a couple of the essential 80s slash early 90s Nick Cage movies. But like, I've, I've still seen some of the ones from that era. And I think I've seen most of the stuff he's done in the 2000s that we're seeing. And it's like, I, I see him as a guy that's just like a great actor that like, you know, just uh, for whatever reason, hasn't consistently like been in great things, but obviously has the capacity to do it. And thus I'm still like kind of fascinated to see where a movie like this one goes, The Unbearable Way to Massive Talent, because I'm, while I'm not always there for the most meta stuff, you can go uh, listen to the podcast Adam and I did earlier this year on Scream to see like how that stuff can be sometimes kind of tiring for me. I'm not as into the uh, version of Nick Cage that has uh, predominantly been the Nick Cage we've gotten for the last 15 years. So I was apt to be like, more interested in a movie that commented on that version of Nick Cage than I actually am on those kind of movies. So what, what, where are you kind of with Nick Cage at this point after having like done your homework on him the last few weeks? Yeah, I will say I was a little surprised that you actually asked me to be on this part with you because mm -hmm. I figured somebody would have claimed this movie <laughs> ages ago because yeah. there are Nicolas Cage super fans mm -hmm. out there and they have been excited for uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent for quite some time. Um, and that's the thing, right? I'm not one of those super fans. In <laughs> yeah. fact, I only really became familiar with this filmography over the last year or so because over the past year, I've done a couple of themed actor slash actress weeks uh, where I would just take a whole bunch of movies from one actor and just watch them during that one week. And I actually yeah. did a Nicolas Cage one last year. So that was kind of my first phase of uh, watching more of his stuff. And then I did another one right before this movie came out. I think it's kind of a bit of a sad story, but one that's kind of... Uh, common in Hollywood, where you had somebody with huge box office draw. Uh, I mean, this guy, if you look at his stuff in um, the 90s and early 2000s, stuff like The Rock, Con Air, uh, Face Off, Gone in 60 Seconds, the National Treasure movies. I mean, those were all big blockbusters, and they really defined him as this uh, re reliable leading man uh, whom you could uh, depend on to get you a return at the box office. And then over the last 10, 12 years, he hasn't been that at all. And I know it was very public for Nicolas Cage because he also had very major debt issues uh, where he had to basically take every single role that came his way to pay those off. Um, but a lot of actors uh, get to a point at a certain age where the offers aren't as attractive anymore. They don't necessarily get the roles that they would want to play. I mean, just look at the cast of The Godfather to take a very extreme example. People like Al Pacino or Robert De Niro, they've made a lot of garbage too over the past 10 or 20 years. And that, I think, is kind of a common tale in Hollywood. So I will say the interesting thing about this movie is that if he hadn't made Pig a year ago, which I've seen now, by the way. I watched it last night, finally. Uh, and we can talk about how I felt about it in a bit. But my point for that is because Pig was so critically acclaimed and now Nicolas Cage is trending upwards again where people are saying, oh, he's really great again. He picked a wonderful project for himself, really got to show what he can do. Now, when you have a movie like that, he's actually in on the joke. 
and he can make fun of that part of his career where I would say if he didn't have pick and he hadn't had a major critical success recently, this whole movie would have come off as a little bit desperate almost where now Nicolas Cage has been reduced to a point where he has to play himself, not getting the roles that he wants, having money issues. But because pick was so successful, I feel like we can all share in the laugh because now Nicolas Cage is somebody who is probably looking at some better years again than he had recently. And that's why I think the movie uh, was so highly anticipated and works to a certain extent. Sure. I, I, I know you said you were a little behind in updating Letterboxd. I'm looking at it now. So did you see Mandy? No. And I, I did not, not see Mandy either. Uh, so that was kind of like almost the start of him like having a comeback, I want to say. But then he had like a bunch of more movies in 2018 and 2019 that no one saw. But Mandy was very critically acclaimed, but it only made like $1.4 million at the box office. Well, actually, shit, Pigming only made $3.8 million, but it's at least on Hulu now. So people, a lot of people have seen it that way. Um, but yeah, so it's it's kind of weird. Like, who knows what he's going to do now? Uh, he looks like he has a couple of movies in production, but like, you know, at least Pig and, Man- and Mandy gave him like, and he was a, a voice in Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Uh, so mm-hmm. that gave him like three critically acclaimed movies over a span of three years, but with like 10 of the direct-to-video things like s- mixed in there. So I, it, it's kind of hard what to know, but at least it's like he's had two of these like good live action movies in the last three years. I just can't speak to Mandy. I just, I didn't get around to it at the time. It wasn't really in theaters for long. And it just, it didn't seem like my kind of thing necessarily. I didn't have anyone tell me like, you would love this. And whereas like something like pig, I I felt like I could like at least more confidently say people tell other people I thought they would like it. But like the way people talk to me about Mandy, it just sounded like almost maybe something that wouldn't be on my wavelength necessarily. And no one gave me a strong recommendation to see it, but like, yeah, Yeah. I think it it, it is kind of, it's funny because like, you know, I, I, I read a little bit. I read up on the unbearable way to massive town a little bit because it's just like, how does a movie like this get made in the first place? You know what I mean? Right. And I, I, I haven't read that much on it. Like I read the production section of the Wikipedia on it where it's like, it sounds like this guy almost did it on spec. Uh, I should say the, uh, the, the, the director, his name is um, uh, Tom Gormican and he, he wrote it and uh, he, he like wrote Nick Cage and like tried to get him to do it for like a while uh, originally turned him down like three or four times. And I don't know if he Which like- It's really funny because I don't know if you saw the article, but apparently their backup plan was to get Daniel Day-Lewis to play Nicolas Cage in the movie. The guy who's reti- who said he was retiring after he did Phantom Thread. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, of a, course, that's a solid backup. He would, yeah, and the guy who's always been the most selective actor in the movie business, you're so confident that he's going to take the role that he would immediately w- w- sign w- when up. The, when, the least, when, the, when the least selective one wouldn't do it. Um, but yeah, so it's like, I guess he wrote it and like had a version, maybe he would have rewritten for Daniel day Lewis then, but like he wrote it. And then like, I guess he just would have had this script sitting here until he like reworked it for whatever actor would say yes, but he, I guess did it for Nick Cage first and then Nick Cage did it. But like, you know, I don't know. So I guess the, it says that the movie got, um, the the production rights got acquired on what November 15th, 2019. So who knows, maybe like Nick Cage agreed to do it at some point a year before that, which would have lined up with when Mandy came out. So uh manny came out in 2018 so who knows maybe it's like okay i feel better about myself i can do like you said maybe he's like i can do something that a little where i at least make fun of myself now that i can feel good about the fact that i finally had another critical hit and at that point he hadn't had anything that was like that critically well received in like five years since that movie joe which is another one i kind of want to see that he did with ty sheridan that got good reviews but was uh not that well seen it's one that i've like meant to get around to so he did these two and then he's like, all right, I can do something kind of funny. And this script seems like, you know, pretty good. And uh, regardless of how like genuine and legitimate these, these people, the claims of are these people who like claim to love direct to video Nick Cage, because I personally don't actually like n- I've never had anyone tell me that direct to video Nick Cage movie was awesome. But I feel like I see again, I feel like I see people on their internet talking about like 
oh yeah, I love bad Nick Cage movies all the time. Like, what do you actually like then? Do you like Ghost Rider? I don't know what people are talking about when they say that. So it's funny though. I mean, if nothing else, like those people would probably go see, even if they don't watch those movies in earnest, they would probably go see a, like a movie about Nick Cage as Nick Cage that is marketed as being like kind of a wacko type of movie. That brings me to the movie itself. I could say I like the unbearable weight of massive talent, but I feel like it's not, it's not as like crazy and off the wall and it's funny as you would kind of come to like be prepared for in a movie like this, though I still like would give it, I still think it was worth going. And I'm guessing you probably kind of came down somewhere similar to me on that. Yeah. And I mean, the hook is fantastic, obviously. Mm -hmm. Just the whole idea that you have actual Nicolas Cage willing to play this part and uh, to make fun of not only his financial troubles, but also his family issues, which I don't know uh, what the deal is in real life. Obviously, both his wife and his daughter are played by actresses and not his actual family members mm -hmm. so i don't know what the state of his personal life is but it's still kind of interesting that he's willing to step into those shoes of a guy who does after all have his name and his career in that movie and he also does not have a teenage of... daughter he has like an infant and he has a 31 year old kid okay so yeah i actually didn't know that so mm -hmm. should have done my research there but um yeah what i find interesting about that is first of all i don't know how many other actors would have been willing to do that and how many others you could have even done it for because I think it takes a very specific type of personality and career uh, to fit that particular idea. Um, you need somebody who's had box office appeal in the past, uh, who's played very memeable characters, so you can have all of those Easter eggs and inside jokes. Uh, but you also need somebody whose career has kind of hit a wall a little bit in recent years uh, mm -hmm. to convey that more, I guess, desperate part that would lead him to accept a $1 million offer to go to a birthday party. And the list is pretty short of actors who I know have uh, that kind of self-awareness and willingness to make fun of themselves to actually do something like that. Honestly, the only one who came to mind immediately was maybe if this had come out five or six years ago, I could have seen maybe Keanu Reeves do something like this right after John Wick, because he also had a bit of a lull in his career. And obviously he played a lot of... Uh, major uh, box office draw characters in the 90s, The Matrix. Maybe John Travolta? Right. That also would have been an option. Like, that would have had to have been an even earlier time. That would have to been an earlier timeline than Keanu because it's been longer since like he had a successful stretch, but he's a similar guy that had like ups and downs like on a little bit of an earlier timeline than Keanu or Nick Cage. Yeah, but I also don't know if he necessarily has the self-irony because the guy still refused to accept that Battlefield Earth was a bad movie. So I'm not <laughs> necessarily convinced that he would have signed up for a project like that. Um. But no, like I said, I think the hook is amazing. The problem is that I don't think the movie fully commits to it. I would say during the first half, it kind of does. Uh, but then eventually the movie kind of turns into the kind of movie that Nicolas Cage would have starred in in the 1990s. And it kind of moves away from this washed up actor who uh, uh, does this gig with this weird guy in Mallorca because he has nothing else currently uh, that would pay him money. It kind of moves away from that. And that's why I thought the movie was still entertaining. But it was a 90s Nicolas Cage action vehicle, and there's only so much uh, you can get from that, I would say, nowadays. I see, I, 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 see, I see what you're saying, but like, the idea, I guess, is that, like, oh, in order to like, kind of continue this investigation, he has to kind of like, lean into the story itself as like, the movie he might be making with this guy. But I'm wondering, what does leaning into the hook look like? Because I do think, like, I, I don't think it, I, I agree, I don't think it's as compelling when like, uh, Javier's... Uh, cousin shows up on the scene who's we learn is actually the main big bad drug dealer and you're having to deal with him i don't think that is quite as interesting but i think the best parts of the movie at least for me are just when he's broing out with javier and mm -hmm. like i think i think that stuff's really funny so 
I'm wondering, like, when you say you wanted to lean into this conceit, which part, which part of that story are you like most referring to where it's like, here's a, here's a path I wish it had gone down that it didn't go down. Did you want like another 30 minutes of them just tripping acid and hanging out as opposed to it being an action movie? <laughs> I don't necessarily know if I needed that, but I think eventually, especially during the last 30 minutes and during the climax, like you really have all the essential ingredients of what a Nicolas Cage movie used to look like. Uh, the kidnapping, uh, the knife fights, the gun battles, the car chases. There's even the like big American flag at the very end that like waves over a building in freaking Spain. I guess well, it's, 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 embassy, it's an American embassy, but, so there, yeah, yeah. But 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 still, I mean, that's obviously a staple of Michael Bay movies, and uh, Nicolas Cage did a few. Actually, I don't know if he did a few of those. I think he only did The Rock. No, I mean, Connor uh, may as well have been a Michael Bay movie. But may it's as not. well have been a Michael Bay yes. movie. It's a Jerry yes. Bruckheimer movie, so yes. I mean, hard to keep them apart, honestly. Um, so I didn't necessarily mind that because I like those movies a lot. I mean, The Rock is probably my favorite Michael Bay movie, I would say. And I mean, Con Air is so ridiculous and over the top that it's honestly entertaining just for that. And I don't necessarily mind watching a movie like that again in 2022. But I came very specifically for a comedy, both a meta comedy oh. and a buddy comedy. I got to pause and you on the Michael Bay thing. You wanted to hear about my uh, Rock experience anyway, but I got to ask Fred. Are, have you seen or have you made plans to see Ambulance? See, I really wanted to, but I had to cancel two showings, actually, that I wanted to attend. And now it's no longer playing at my movie theater. Oh, really? I just okay. couldn't make it happen because Logan wasn't interested. So I also had to plan around oh, her. So, Ambulance is really good. good. It was really good. I was excited good. to see it. Our friend Josh Brown would be uh, would be pained if he heard that you hadn't seen it because mm, uh, yeah. he, sa he says it was the best Michael Bay movie. I'm trying. I'm like, I'm like kind of. I don't know. It is right there. Like I think pain and gain is my favorite Michael Bay movie. Uh, but I would say like, for me, like I really like the rock too. And I would put it like, I don't know. I, I might put, I might put still put ambulance ahead of the rock. It might go pain and gain ambulance, the rock. And I really, really like the rock. Uh, and that just tells you how much I liked ambulance. Cause I mean, though ambulance is probably like similar to the rock and that they're both probably too long. Uh, but at the same time, like I, I can like probably, find more a little more fat to trim with the rock but like i mean i think the rock is almost more uh i as far you know as far as michael bay movies i might rank it higher on my michael bay movies and i don't know if i'd rank it higher on my michael bay movies than i would on my nick cage movies i don't know if it's it's maybe top five nick cage for me but like i think the best part of the movie is sean connery so, sean connery exactly right so, it's and, like, it, so it's, and i think Ed harris is really good in it too actually is a really compelling villain with interesting motivations as right, which you don't really you don't really expect that from a michael bay movie you just just like exactly he's, he's gonna make to things go boom and i'm gonna like him making yeah. things go boom but like also like probably like more uh more uh um acceptable politics than your average michael bay movie and that like yeah. you know it has something interesting to say about like how we treat uh soldiers that have come home from war and like i think that's just like a like you said i think that's that's probably the best thing like I, honestly like i might actually agree with that like nick cage is like memorable because he's like one of the first times he's really going out there with crazy line deliveries and stuff like that that don't totally make sense but they're still entertaining but like just an incredibly charismatic sean connery performance i know he i think he won the oscar for the untouchables but like it might be like just the most memorable thing i've ever seen him in outside of the bond movies um and i guess the greatest oh sorry god i didn't realize well no no i was just gonna say i, I think it might, he might go one two three as far as like who i like in that movie out of those guys and cage might be third because like in in a, in a michael bay movie you don't necessarily expect a, like a villain to just be like that compelling and i kind of like the idea of like a villain that's like grappling with like whether he even he spending the most of the runtime of an action movie having a villain grapple with whether he even wants to be doing that thing is like pretty unique and i just that, that's that was one of the better things about the rocks i'm glad you highlighted that 
I would say the biggest indicator that The Rock is a very unusual entry on Michael Bay's resume is that it's part of the Criterion Collection. I heard that. I, I don't I yeah. don't know a ton about how like that stuff gets selected, but I think that's I, I think it's hilarious. I mean, it's 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 I haven't I've never heard anyone be like, I don't like The Rock. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it, it, I mean, like it's 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 a silly action movie, but like there are parts of it, like we said, that like are are like the Ed Harris stuff is is more than just silly, and it's funny that like I, when, when you you're never going to hear anyone say anything bad about that movie, and it's just kind of funny to say that about a Michael Bay movie. Um, yeah. I and so I I I'll be very curious to hear once you have a chance to see Ambulance, uh, what you think about it. If you happen to be near a movie theater that does have it next few weeks, I think it I think it's worthy of seeing it on the big screen. I think I saw it mm-hmm. in IMAX. Um, but like, man, there's just some like absolutely crazy stuff. Michael Bay, like learned that he likes drones and he does it and, <laughs> and he puts them to good use. Uh, that's, that's one thing I'll tease with. But yeah, I, I, I don't, how, how did we get off to talking about the rock? I don't know, but it's funny. Cause I, I did, I did make it a point to watch the rock and Con Air like around this. And I, I, I do think the, um, man, I, I don't know which I like better between the rock and, uh, face off. Like, cause it's been a few years since I watched face off, but like, I would put the, I, I, I think face off might be like. Oh man, face off sillier and I get something out of that. But like the, I mean, the rock is probably objectively a better movie, but they're both good. Uh, I Con Air is easily third of those, but like I Con Air is still plenty entertaining. There's just some like incomprehensible stuff in the final act of Con Air for me in a way that like, I think the rock holds together better. Like there's just like, there's scenes, the stuff at the end of Con Air where it's like, you know, like, the, the so the remember at the end where it's like they they cr- they crash the plane into Las Vegas and like yeah, right. all of a sudden it seems like the Nick Cage character is like wrapping things up he's like you know like uh seeing to like he's about to go talk to the family he's like seeing that the McKelty T Williams guy that finally gets like the medical care he needs it's just like it's it, it reads like the final scene but like no one's actually accounted for the Malkovich character it's just so strange it's like, oh shit we got yeah. we got we, we got to have another scene but like it's not really choreographed that well i don't know what, what you thought about that but it's like you don't know what's going on inside of that plane all the way up and through he like pops his head out and like tries to make his escape or tries to make his final stand it's just like very strange how like the whole entire action sequence is edited together in a way that kind of just like it kind of bothered me but like it's undeniably i don't know entertaining um so that that's what i'll say about that but it is funny that i just happened to watch the rock and like the rock is the one that easily gets referenced the most here i would say and like they keep playing parts of it and stuff like that and it, it's it's just going back to what you said about like having other actors that you could do this with i think it was a pretty good point and that like what other actors could you have like played fun clips from movies like that of that like would have been instantly recognizable. And I think Keanu was a great call because it's, it's funny to hear him riff on this. And it's funny to like, that he's willing to like kind of go there and like even have a scene like that in the, in, in, in a uh, Javier's room of Nick Cage memorabilia. Like it's, it's just probably the perfect kind of actor to do that with where you can find all sorts of silly shit. And also I, making fun of his tendency to spend money on useless shit. Like, Cause he offers to buy the 20- yeah. I'm going to pay $20,000 for that ridiculous Nick Cage statue. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that kind of goes to like why, I mean, it, it, it totally makes sense. I mean, I, I, I'm glad we had that digression. I was happy to kind of be able to put my thoughts on the rock somewhere else, but like, I think it, it totally makes sense that someone would be like that into those kind of movies. And the, my favorite parts of the unbearable way to massive talent more so than like where it, where it gets into, like you said, the, uh, the actual Nick Cage movie type parts is like when when he's just hanging out with Javier because it's such a likable performance from Pedro Pascal, uh, and I like I, I'm happy that he got to like do something like this because it seems like most of the stuff he's done in movies is just like either not good or super serious. Like I don't think Wonder Woman 1984 is very good, and he's not really especially good in it. And then he's in like you know the Mandalorian where you never see his face. He's in 
he's charismatic in Game of Thrones, but that's a that's a short uh, a shorter arc. It's one season appearance. Yeah, yeah and, and there's like um, Triple Frontier, which is like a serious movie, and I'm I'm not thinking of anything else off the top of my head where he like makes yeah, a makes a big impression in really did you i, for, I forgot are, are you by any chance a fan of community uh no i have not seen community okay so there's like, an... I, have a, I have a bit of a weird relationship with sitcoms in general where i just really can't get into them usually okay i know okay. i'm not a funny guy i mean well that's why i, I thought it was kind of fun to have you on for this movie because i feel like we're usually having you on to talk about serious stuff so i was excited to at least talk about this with you uh my point about community which i mean uh if there's ever a sitcom to try for someone that's not into sitcoms that might be it because it's so unconventional but uh they, they they like a lot of other shows during the early parts of the pandemic did like a youtube table read where like you know you raise money for a charity or something like that and as you may or may not know as someone that's not a fan of the show uh chevy chase was a core character for a while but had a lot of fallings out with the creator dan Harmon, and so it was kind funny that like for this table read like he wasn't there but they got donald glover to come back who's like obviously like has bigger and better things to do than just about anyone in that cast even if a lot of them have gone on to do worthwhile things so donald glover is there and uh but like they 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 had a they had like a or actually no they 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 picked an episode where the chevy chase character wasn't in it but like there was a a guest spot on the episode that they did the table read on that was read that, that was played by walton goggins in the show but he wasn't available for this table read so they got pedro pascal to fill in and like he was just like, and again, I've never seen Pedro Pascal do anything really comedic at that point. And he's there and he's like cracking up at the dialogue. He can't, he keeps breaking. And it just made me like, oh, this guy actually has a sense of humor. I'm curious to see him like actually do stuff. He, he obviously agreed to do this because this guy that's known for all this serious stuff is a fan of this like goofy, weird sitcom so i was happy for him because i could see him being the kind of guy that is into all kinds of nick cage stuff just based on the impression i got from him being that into this episode of community and so i was like so happy for him to get to play someone so goofy and so likable and i just totally love their vibe i'm wondering uh we kind of talked around it as far as what what a better version of this movie looks like but what did you what did you like about him and in this movie and is there another version of this movie you could have seen that like hey, I wanted it to take that turn in the plot as opposed to kind of turning into this action movie, even if it was trying to be clever and commenting on it. So to get this started, a better version of this movie is one that doesn't spoil all of its funniest moments in the trailer. Like that for starters is a major issue that uh, has been plaguing comedies for a long time. And some of the really funniest gags in their interaction, like the one where they climb the wall together. and Oh, really? That was in the trailer? I think I might have watched the trailer once and forgotten about it. Yeah, that was like a big, like major moment uh, in the trailer. I think it was actually so the part where it's revealed that he just like you can walk around the wall. They even gave that away in the trailer. Oh yeah, they did. Oh my god, they did. That was was like the funniest part of the movie. Scenes in the movie. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I already knew what was going to happen. It still got laughs in the theater. I assume some people Mm. hadn't seen the previews, so they still enjoyed it. But I'm just sitting here thinking, like, why would you give that away? I mean, Mm. you have this fantastic chemistry between these two actors, and you come up with funny ways for how they're uh, playing out the script that they're trying to write together. Uh, and then you ruin it because I would argue people who are interested in a movie like this, one that makes fun of the movies in a way, are probably ones who go to the movie theater a lot and have seen the, the preview over and over again, presumably. And they're probably going to so, see it. And if you're down for a movie with this weird of a conceit, you're probably, you're probably, you probably don't need to be convinced by a, a trailer and a, a joke in a trailer. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I don't really understand why you would do that. That was, that, that was a bad call on their part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, but I'm honestly not entirely sure. So that's what I'm saying. I, mean, like, I agree with you. Like, I agree with you that I feel like it made some missteps, but like, I'm trying to think of like where I wanted it to go, but like, it just felt like it was, it just overall felt like it. I don't know. I don't want to even say like played it straight, but I guess that's what it did. Like, 
I, I feel like going, it's kind of going off the rails in a way, but like, I don't know. It probably just wasn't funny enough. I mean, I, I think that's a point you made in your review, but like I did have some laugh out loud moments, but like, it, I think it just didn't generate quite enough. And I guess I came in expecting more of that, especially given how strong the reviews were. Yeah, because I mean, the Nicholas, the fictional version of Nicholas Cage in this mm-hmm. movie also starts to embrace this uh, action hero persona that he's being asked to play by the CIA. And you have those moments where he's like in front of the mirror and he talks about, oh, I'm really good at this. I could do more of this stuff. And then they keep asking him to do stuff and uh, he's increasingly uncomfortable with it. Although I will say, I got a great laugh out of the fact that uh, the CIA shows up and they brag about the fact that they did years of surveillance on this guy and they know 100% that he's the main villain here. And Nick Cage goes, oh, well, but I've, I've, I've been hanging out with him. He's such a nice guy. I guess no way that he's actually a supervillain. And then, of course, he's right. And as it turns out, our uh, intelligence agencies are totally incompetent and can't even figure that out correctly. Well, I would say so, like I w- that, 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 that's one issue there is that you have Tiffany Haddish in your movie and she's not responsible for generating any of the laughs in the movie. And no. uh, she's she's like genuinely one of the funnier, funnier actresses working today. And you kind of ask her to play it straight. So, uh, yeah, it's funny that the CIA in a way is kind of incompetent, but they you would have th- they could have done they could have done that in a funnier way where like you're casting two comedians to like play those roles, you know, and it's just there. To, they're, they're just there to kind of be wrong, but not in any not in an interesting way. Yeah, and yet again, I got a laugh out of the uh, first interaction she has with Nick Cage where they're at the airport and uh, then she talks to our colleagues and she's like, oh my God, have you seen Croods 2? He just <laughs> goes, no, I'm a 40-year-old man. Why would I watch Croods 2? That's, a good, that's good. That was, that, that was funny. Off. But yeah. also in the trailer. Also in the trailer. Oh, really? That entire interaction, yeah. Once again, the funniest jokes already spoiled ahead of the game and it just like drives me insane why they would do that. Like you have a, I mean, obviously you want to get people to see a movie and you want to tell them that it's funny, but why would you take your greatest jokes and already make them available beforehand? It drives me insane when, when they do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, try- I'm just, I'm just trying to think. Cause again, it felt lacking for something with like a lot of promise to be like uh, truly absurd, but like, I don't want to, I don't want to knock it too hard when I'm having trouble saying what else it should have done per se. I also like I, what, one thing I do want to highlight and I don't exactly know how else they could have used her, but like, uh, I, I was, a, I was a huge fan of um, Alessandra Mastrodonardi's work on season two of Master of None. I had not seen her since then. Played like a character that uh, Aziz Ansari's character like met in, it, met in Italy and like came over to America, kind of becomes a love interest. I was like, oh, that person, could she could be a star. And like, I don't think she'd done like anything English language since then. So I was like happy to see her too as like Javier's assistant slash maybe love interest. And like, so it's just like a lot of people I genuinely like. I like Sharon Horgan. She was one of the better parts of Game Night. In addition to anyone that's seen Catastrophe, she's like obviously good in that. So it's like it's it's just it's just so many good ingredients. And I'm I I it's just like one I wanted more laughs, and I I wanted more laughs, and I I honestly couldn't tell you what was in the trailer. So like I laughed at that stuff, and I just still felt like there should have been more. And maybe it's just maybe just like that 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 final act, which is like an action sequence. I mean, I so I like the part where they put him in makeup. Um, I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I did kind of laugh at that because it was just such an absurd scene, but like maybe everything else was just played kind of straight and I, it could have just taken a couple other like surprising turns. I mean, I guess they try and be clever with how they, the, the final note where like, where it turns into the movie. But like, aside from that, it's like, all right, like there's nothing really different about this. There's you're selling us on like this entire, we weird, like meta high concept thing or it's, it's not even really high concept. It's just a, it's just a, a meta thing and everyone's going to kind of like that, but it's just, you're not really, you're kind of losing the thread on that aside from the fact that, like you said, it just kind of turns into like 
a plot development from a Nick Cage movie. Whereas instead, you know, maybe they could have like delved a little further into like, maybe just toned down the stuff with the drug dealer cousin a little bit in the, in the CIA and been like, Hey, what does it actually look like if these guys like, Hey, what maybe they use some of uh, Javier's money and they start trying to make their own movie or something like that and yeah. actually see what that beginnings of that might look like. Cause like I, what kind of, what kind of movie have you ever seen something like that in before, I guess, you know? Yeah, and I was going to say, I think a big part of it is that we kind of see what Nicolas Cage, or the fictional version of Nicolas Cage, is like when he's not in front of a camera. But it would have been really interesting to kind of get the next step where, okay, now they have the script, they're actually going to shoot this movie together. What does this Nicolas Cage actually look like when he's in front of a camera trying to act and getting uh, directions? Or pitching uh, stuff to Hollywood, or, or, or like pitching this movie to like Hollywood production companies or something like that, assuming exactly, they might yeah. need to help with something like that. I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting. He has the meeting with David Gordon Green uh, at the beginning where he thinks he wants to land that movie. But David Gordon Green, I guess, uh, made Joe, that other movie I referenced earlier. So he has a real life relationship with him. I don't know if like that, that movie exists in this world or not because uh i couldn't tell the level of familiarity he was supposed to have with him but he's obviously a friend in real life if he has a cameo in this movie which nick cage is a producer on but like hey what what what, what would it look like if he like i i just find that interesting it kind of a weird thing like not that we haven't seen stuff like that before like behind the scenes industry content in movies or tv how do current hollywood people actually think feel when nick cage walks into the room you know that is something that would be interesting to me it's funny to like see what this i i enjoyed seeing this version of nick cage talk about the fact that he knows how people talk about him and knows about the fact that people make fun of the fact that he's always working. But like, I think people can't deny that he's obviously like a very talented actor, even if like he hasn't been nominated for an Oscar in uh, almost 20 years for when he, when he got nominated for adaptation. The fact is things like, I guess, Mandy, things like uh, pig, like people now, like, and I guess this was made before people saw pig probably, but like people still like can acknowledge he can, he has the capacity to be a great actor, but he like makes a lot of dreck. So I want to know what is the head of, paramount think when he walks into the room what is the head of netflix think when he walks into the room that would have been a fun different kind of meta setup to do something like this not again not that we haven't seen that that kind of stuff before the whole last season's of curb your enthusiasm was a fictional version of larry david walking into a bunch of different production studios but like i would like to see that with nick cage because he is a very unique singular hollywood figure and i guess we i'm glad we kind of talked our way to this point because now i'm talking myself into a version of this that like would have been better even again if i didn't mind this movie Right, and you look at a movie like Being the Ricardos, for example, that mm -hmm. kind of plays this whole thing straight for how, how do things play out on a Hollywood set or on the set of a television show. And here you have this very unique conceit that the actual actor in question is playing himself. So you don't have to play it straight. You can actually play it as both a mix of satire and a bit of genuine insight for A, what it's like when Nicolas Cage is specifically acting, and B, also what it's like when an actor who... Again, he's been working in Hollywood for decades at this point. Doesn't necessarily get the greatest leading roles anymore. Like, how does that kind of tie into his relationships with directors and screenwriters and anybody else who might be part of a production? Uh, Are there people pitching him on being a supporting role in a movie? Because that's something he hasn't like done a lot of. I don't. I don't know. Like, that's just the thought I had. It's like he's been like the lead of all of this stuff he's done, but like it's kind of interesting that for someone that's like had the ups and downs he is, he's not, he's never been like, I'm going to pop up and be like a supporting character in a big movie. Like you can almost understand why someone might not want to invest like a massive budget on him. Though I was randomly on one of the direct to video movies he did recently. And like when I was looking through his filmography and like one of them did have like a $25 million budget, maybe there's like foreign investment in that. I don't know. But like, you know, like, is there, what would it look like if a director is like, Hey, yeah. Or what if Martin Scorsese is like, Hey, come who he's actually has worked with before. I didn't realize that until I found that is this a Scorsese movie I hadn't seen. 
Oh like, right, yeah. Uh the one about the uh the ambulances, funnily enough. Yeah, was yeah, it bring, so, bringing up the dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like what one, yeah, last year, huh? Right. So like what 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 if like Martin Scorsese's like, hey man, like, you know, come be like the the fourth lead in my movie or something like that? Like, what does a conversation like that go when he might still see himself as a leading man? Like, I think I I, I feel like I kind of get what we were getting at earlier, and that like it literally just becomes an action movie. And what if it become about like Nick Cage, the movie star, more like for more of the runtime reckoning with his place in the industry? And that's just not what it is in the second half of the movie. Yeah, it loses sight of its initial premise a little mm -hmm. bit. And that's unfortunate because again, there are still ways you can explore that. And I think even though it is played for last for the most part, it is kind of tragic also because, like I said, a lot of really great actors, Oscar winners, people who've done great classics of cinema, a lot of times they're reduced to taking really shitty roles later in life because they just don't get those opportunities anymore and they still need to pay the bills. They still need to finance a certain uh, level of life, lifestyle that they've become accustomed to. Um, so, I mean, I already mentioned the likes of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino who star in like really crappy uh, VOD stuff from time to time now because they don't really have the opportunities anymore that they used to have. So I think that there is really a, a kind of sad undercurrent almost here as well that I think Nicolas Cage is uniquely suited to play because on one hand, yeah, he is kind of self-aware and funny and has done some really bad stuff, but he's also a guy who always gives 100% to every role that he plays which is why I think a lot of people really like him, even though he has done so much bad stuff. Exhibit A being, of course, his uh, scene in The Wicker Man uh, that everybody knows. Not the bees! Not the bees! Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's also his Grindhouse cameo as Dr. Fu Manchu, uh, where he shows up in like a one-minute fake trailer as uh, this guy uh, who creates a werewolf women for the SS. Uh, and it's obviously meant to be like a really trashy trailer, but he was still willing to go in like full makeup, full costume. Um, and it's obviously ridiculous, but he is somebody who's always willing to commit to things like that as well. So that's why I think people always have this impression of him that he's a guy who's on one hand kind of selling himself out because he is obviously a genuine artist when you read interviews with him, like he believes in his craft. Uh, but he's also willing to do things way beneath his talent. And that's why I think this movie really works for him, where you kind of get a mixture of both, where you kind of see the version of Nicolas Cage who's doing things that he doesn't want to do anymore. But he's also, by the end, getting to a point again where he's re-embraced that version of himself from the 1990s. Sure. Any final thoughts, Fred, before we wrap it up? No, I just hope that people go see it, because, again, this is ultimately, at its core, a celebration of the movies and mm -hmm. actors and uh, you know, like this year has kind of been um, really encouraging in terms of that, uh, like everything everywhere all at once is making a lot of money. Uh, you get movies like this that are like sort of unique, have a very uh, strange hook that might not appeal to everyone. But like it did apparently make a good amount of money on its first weekend and I was in a pretty full showing as well. So I'm just glad to see that movies like that exist, that they're coming back to the theaters, that they're not always just on streaming services. So that's why I think people should go out and support this, even though, again, it might have been, uh, there was definitely, definitely some meat left on the bone in terms of uh, how they could have played this premise.
Yeah, I mean, I hope it makes money. It's cool that like someone even thought it was worth putting up $30 million to make this movie. Uh, you know, I think people like get a little overblown with like how movies are dying when they talk about the theater experience. Cause it's like kind of crazy that just like on the same weekend, like both this and the Northman came out. I'm still like, I, I think, I think you're going to go, you haven't seen the Northman yet as of the recording of this, but like my, my review of it, which people will hear at some point, cause I'm doing a podcast with that on our, with doing a podcast on it with our friends, uh, Elijah and Ben later this week. Uh, almost more than I like it. I just respect it. And I marvel at the fact that someone like paid $80 million to like have that movie made <laughs> today. Cause so it's like, you know, while I think it's stuff like this is still getting made with these kind of budgets, even if we kind of like to worry about the fact that that might not happen much longer. But the fact is the death of those movies still hasn't happened. And like we, and as much as people might like to talk about it happening, so we should support these movies when they come out. And it's kind of wild that like someone put up $30 million to make this very meta movie about Nick Cage. So I want people to support it. And I think it's good. It's just like, as Fred and I have discussed, there's other things they could have done to like, you know, still make it better. But like, I also like want to support it. Cause like, heck, I want, I want people that I want people, I want good filmmakers to keep working with Nick Cage. And I want them to see him as like a draw. Uh, despite the fact that he's done all the direct to video stuff and, you know, hopefully like this and hopefully this and pig, like, you know, inspire other people to like, you know, like keep finding in interesting things for him to do as long as he's willing to do them. Fred, anything else you've been watching recently you want to talk about? I mean, you can give me a review of pig now, but also if you have anything else you want to talk about, feel free to do that as well. Right. So the first uh, thing I want to say is in terms of Nicolas Cage movies, one movie that doesn't get a lot of love at mm -hmm. all uh, but that I highly recommend to people is Lord of War. I was like, clicking through on the letterbox during that because that's when I always meant to get around to seeing, never did, and it looked like you really liked it. Yeah, I, I really do. And it's a shame that it hasn't uh, got more of a following. It's the kind of movie that usually builds into a cult classic, but for some reason it hasn't. It's directed by Andrew Nichol, the guy who did Gattaca, which is one of my favorite science fiction movies. Uh, it also has something that is an increasingly rare phenomenon nowadays, which is a good Jared Leto performance. Um, mm. And it's just a really interesting depiction of... Uh, uh, arms dealing throughout the 80s and 90s, how the end of the Cold War kind of opened up opportunities for people to just go into the Soviet Union, take all of those old weapons and sell them on the world market, including to terrorists. Um, and it is a little bit of a sort of satirical and humorous uh, attempt to depict the topic as well. So I think it's a really well done movie. Uh, it doesn't get nearly enough attention. So I highly recommend that to people if you want to familiarize yourself with some of the more obscure stuff that Nicolas Cage has done. Mm -hmm. uh, outside of Nicolas Cage, there's a lot of really good uh, television content streaming right now. Mm. So the general recommendation I want to give to people right now is to get an Apple TV subscription because they have a lot of good stuff coming out and had good stuff coming out recently. So I don't think there's any way around that anymore at this point. The big one I want to give a shout out to is Pachinko, which just got renewed for a second season the other day, actually. Uh, it's based on a book that came out a few years ago that deals with... Uh, about a century of uh, family history of a Korean uh, family that uh, emigrates to Japan and under uh, terrible hardships and poverty, uh, they have to build a life for themselves there. It's just a really well done, wonderful story told over multiple generations. Uh, some uh, great directing talent behind the camera too. Uh, half the episodes are directed by Kogonada, a guy uh, who you might know from uh, having directed After Yang and a movie I haven't seen yet, Columbus. Is that what it's called? Columbus is good. I, I need to watch After Yang again. I watched it hungover on a plane on my iPad. And I was going to do a podcast with Ben, and then Ben didn't make it. So it's one that did not get covered here. Definitely worth seeing, but I owe it another watch. 
Um, got it. So definitely uh, give Pachinko a go. Like I said, just got renewed. So that show will be around for some time to come. Also, uh, and, well, for, as far as Apple TV Plus, I've already plugged it on here before. I don't know if you've gotten to For All Mankind yet, but season three comes out on June 10th and season two is awesome. Yet. So you got like, if, if, if you're just looking for a new one to start after you get done with whatever you're watching now, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if you're as generally in on space stuff or not. I'm usually like kind of tired of it to this point, but I finally kind of gave in when the reviews for season two of Man, For All Mankind were so good. And Apparently, I mean, apparently it was a big step up for a lot of people from season one, but I really like season one too. So it's 20 episodes and you got, everyone has like six weeks to catch up on it before season three drops. Okay. Yeah, I got to add that to the, my list. Like there's so much stuff coming out these days. It's really hard. I have to not watched Pachinko. I'm, it's good. To, I had not talked to any person. I had not had a friend be like, watch Pachinko. I'd seen it talked about a couple of times. It's like really good from like critics. And I just hadn't like gotten the push to watch it yet. So hearing you say it's good makes me uh, more likely to like push it up the watch list, you know? So Absolutely, and also uh, has a very good performance by uh, Ju Jun Yun, who won an Oscar last year for Minari. Oh. So I would definitely uh, recommend uh, checking that out if uh, you are a fan of her performance. She's in it quite a bit too. Uh, and then another show also on Apple that I want to recommend to people, it's called Slow Horses, which stars Gary Oldman as this kind of uh, old spy master who's now running uh, the absolute like bottom rung of MI5. Hmm. essentially like all the people who were uh discarded from the main building because they either got uh they either got in trouble or they messed up on the job or sent embarrassing emails um and they get drawn into a major conspiracy where they of course have to end up uh, saving the day uh throughout one night uh set in london kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the more uh i guess mundane uh idea of what spying is like that john le carré used to do um, but it's a really intense thriller. It's six episodes long, also got renewed for a second season. Uh, and again, a really fantastic, very sort of disgusting almost performance by Gary Oldman, mm. uh, which he's, he's really good in these kind of parts. So I definitely recommend that. And then one last thing on HBO Max. Uh, I know Ansel Elgort is persona non grata nowadays, but Tokyo Vice, uh, executive produced by one of my favorite filmmakers, Michael Mann. Uh, that's on HBO Max now. Eight episodes set in late 1990s uh, Tokyo. Uh, Ansel Elgort, he's a reporter at a Tokyo newspaper, and he gets uh, entangled uh, with the Yakuza, obviously, and befriends uh, one of the higher-ups uh, at the police department, played by Ken Watanabe. I'm not adverse to watching that. anything because Ansel Elgort's in it. I mean, necessarily, West Side Story is one of my 10 favorite movies of last year, but like, man, I don't know if I'd buy him as a reporter. Uh, that's a, that's like another step. Like, like you you work at a newspaper as a writer, guy that looks like he leads at a boy band. You know, <laughs> it, it actually kind of works weirdly enough because the idea is that he's like this like super naive guy. Obviously, he's the first foreigner to ever get hired at that newspaper, and like obviously he does everything wrong. Uh, nobody trusts him to do uh, the right thing, and then uh, through some lucky happenstance, he befriends Ken Watanabe's character and gets a lot more insight into uh, some of the uh, dark dealings of the Tokyo underworld. So we're halfway through that uh, at this point. Also really intense. So definitely something I would recommend as well. If, again, you can get over the fact that uh, Ansel Elgort is the one starring in it. Yeah, okay. Uh, I don't have a ton to plug myself at the moment because I've just been like incredibly busy with work and have not been watching really any movies that aren't things I for the podcast. And I, 
Uh, I guess I'll say I, I did it just this morning. I watched the series finale of Better Things, which I mean, it's just a great show, but it's like five seasons. So it's like hard to like just tell someone, hey, go watch that five season show. Like it's, it's, it's harder to recommend something like that than the stuff Fred just recommended. That's like right in its first season because it's just like a taller task to catch up on. But like if you think you might, if you're the kind of person that likes semi, about, semi-autobiographical shows about comedians, which are a dime a dozen, but this one's a little unique in that it's, you know, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's about a woman who like, you know, also is playing a version of herself and like stars and directs almost every episode of the show and writes in it and uh, has a bunch of just great supporting characters from uh, just actors that like aren't really the star of anything but like she gives them a place to shine and do something unique and uh, just very touching and uh, just a very 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 well done show and I'm very happy that Pamela Adwan got to do that for five years and uh, really really make it her own that's about it Uh, coming up next on the podcast don't exactly know because I have stuff in the can. I don't know what order I'm putting everything else out in. But one thing I can say is like, if you feel like brushing up on your Toy Story ahead of uh, Lightyear, which is coming in June, uh, <laughs> much like I did a Batman Rewind series in advance of the Batman with my friend Nick, I am doing. I'm I'm soon going to be releasing uh, reviews of all the Toy Story movies with our friend Joe. Uh, so you know, if, if you just feel like revisiting Toy Story, go do that on Disney Plus because we will have at least three episodes. Joe is trying to convince me to do a Toy Story four episode, even though we did that with Adam three years ago. Joe wants to do another, mm. so I'm. I might fight him on that, just depending on how much time I have. But at the very least, we will have episodes on Toy Story, Toy Story 2, and Toy Story 3. So uh, I have that coming for you uh, in addition to uh, what other, whatever other stuff I have recorded at this point that I haven't put out yet. So um, everyone, stay, stay, watch out for that. Uh, Fred, where can people find you on Letterboxd? Uh, yes, please do follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, that is Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Uh, and I promise this is the only time the fictionalized version of myself will be on this part. Next time, it'll be the real Fred again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And The Real Fred does a lot of great uh, write-ups on Letterboxd, so you can go see what he's, uh, see his more in-depth thoughts on all these other Nick Cage movies we referenced there. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I on Twitter and Letterboxd. Fred, you'll be happy to know I'll probably soon be doing like a like a two-month drop of a bunch of Letterboxd reviews that have not been posted yet because I'm just I'm still in that habit of like not posting stuff. I thought stuff you'd given up I... on that. Uh, no, on, no, on no. I still have them like all, still have them all written, but like I, I just like, I'm still like doing that thing where like, I can't put it out till the Letterboxd link is posted and because of some like scheduling and editing difficulties my episode on dog with daniel got very delayed and once it's on once it like like i did for the episode with logan on cyrano once dog is streaming somewhere for less than 20 dollars, i will put up that episode and that is the i have not posted a single one since the date i saw dog because i have to post them all in order and i have to post them with the letterbox with with this with, with the podcast link so i i have like two 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 months reviews backed up i i'm not giving up on writing them uh they're there uh so yeah everyone you can check me out there uh thanks again to fred for joining thanks to all of you for listening and we'll see you next time